0: Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Today we're going to share with you a sample lesson from one of Bishop Barron's classic study programs. The program is titled Untold Blessing, and it looks at the mysterious range of paths that we need to follow to achieve holiness. He groups them into three categories first, finding the sinner, second, knowing you're a sinner. And third, realizing your life is not about you. In the program, Bishop Barron shares the practical approaches to enhance your journey along these three paths. Today, we're going to hear part one of two of that third path. I know that sounds a little complicated, but it's on Your Life Is Not About You, part one. And then next week, we'll hit up part two of that segment. So sit back and enjoy this sample lesson from Bishop Barron's Untold Blessing Study Program. Again, it's titled Your Life Is Not About You. Enjoy.
1: Now, path number three. We found the center, or better, the center has found us. In that light, we know we're sinners, but Christ who is the healer, Christ who is the keynote player, Christ who is the warrior struggles to set it right. Now, we're ready for mission. We're gathered, we're healed, we're sent. Biblical religion is a mission religion. The ancient philosopher Plotinus said, the goal of the spiritual life is so to ascend this world, go beyond this world, so as to be alone with the alone. I'm united with God mystically. Well, whatever that is, it ain't biblical. In the Bible, when God appears, God speaks, God calls, He sends people. Moses is addressed from the burning bush. He hears God's name. Moses doesn't stay at the burning bush for the rest of his life, because God says, Moses, I've got a job for you. My people are crying out in their oppression in Egypt. You go and liberate them. Isaiah sees that vision of God in the temple, doesn't stay in the temple, but rather he's been sent out by God to proclaim. God addresses Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, Lord, I'm too young. Don't ask me. Don't say you're too young. I've got a job for you. Saul of Tarsus is knocked to the ground. And then he's sent. In the biblical religion, once we're called, healed, then we are sent out on a mission. I've summed this up now with this phrase. Your life is not about you. It's your life. Yes, it is. Gift from God. But it's not about you. It's ingredient in an infinitely higher will, which wants to use your life for his purposes. Remember the end of John's Gospel? The risen Lord is addressing St. Peter. You know, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then he says this. When you were young, you tied your own belt and you went where you wanted to go. But when you are an old man, somebody else will tie you up and take you where you do not want to go. That's the spiritual life. When we're young, okay, first half of life, we set the agenda. You know, my will, my projects, my plans, my hopes. Fair enough, okay. But, but, when you're an old man in the second half of life, when you're ready to get serious, now someone else will tie you up. That someone else is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will so invade your life, will so revolutionize your projects, your will, your plans, your hopes, that now you become a soldier in God's army. Now you become part of God's design. Your life, not about you. Rather, it's about the Lord God and the Lord God's desire for you. How about this from Paul to the Ephesians? There's a power already at work in you that can do infinitely more than you can ask or imagine. Now, that's putting it more positively, but the same idea. There's a power, God's power, the Holy Spirit, already at work in you that can do infinitely more than you can ask or imagine. Your plans, your hopes, your projects. are nothing compared to what God wants to accomplish through you. Paul's point, learn how to surrender to it. Learn how to surrender to this power. A lot of path two is preparing you for path three. When you're healed, properly ordered, now you're ready to respond to mission. I mentioned Hans Urs von Balthasar earlier, one of my favorite contemporary theologians. He speaks of the theodrama. He was a musician, Balthasar, and he was a a dramatist and a, a critic of drama. He loved the theater. The theodrama, what's that? That's the drama that God is writing, directing, producing. you got a role in it. We all do. In fact, everything in the cosmos has a role in it. Finding the role in God's drama for you, that's the pearl of great price. That's the treasure buried in the field. Jesus says, when you find that treasure buried in the field, sell it. Everything else and buy it. That means sell your plans, your projects, your goals, your desires, so as to buy that. When you know what God wants to do with you and through you, that's everything. A pearl of great price, when you find it, sell everything you got to buy it. Become part of the theodrama. What's the problem? The ego drama. Most of us are in the ego drama. That's the drama that is written by me, produced by me, and above all, starring me. (laughs) The ego drama, what the ego wants. My projects, my plans, my purposes. How narrow your life becomes, how finely dull, how finely banal and flat your life becomes when you live in the ego drama. Because it's fascinating to you, see? You're like Satan, buried in the ice. Your kingdom precisely as big as your own ego. How rich and romantic and full your life becomes when you become ingredient in the theodrama. Here's a a scene I love from uh, Man for All Seasons, the great play by Robert Bolt made into a movie. I first saw the movie, of course, about St. Thomas More and all his struggles with Henry VIII and all that. I first saw it when I was 16, I think. I watch it every year on the Feast of Thomas More, June the 22nd, and I show it to my students here whenever I can. Um, It's a movie that just speaks so eloquently of the spiritual life. Well, there's a scene toward the beginning of the play, not one of the better-known scenes, but one that always grabs me. Thomas More is a very high figure in the government of Henry VIII. He's at the court. He's a very important player. Into his life comes this young man named Richard Rich. Now, there really was a figure named Richard Rich, but what a terrific name for a playwright, you know? (laughs) Talk about someone on the rim of the Wheel of Fortune. Talk about someone who's in love with material things, who loves honor and glory and power. Richard Rich comes along. He's a recent Cambridge graduate, young guy, maybe 22 or three, And he hangs around St. Thomas More. I mean, big mistake in terms of his... His earthly career. You don't hang around saints if you want an earthly career. But he hangs around Thomas More because he's a big dealer at the court of Henry VIII. And Richard, rich, wants a big job. So he pesters More and pesters More to get him a position at court. Finally, More says to him, Richard, I have a job for you. You do? (laughs) His ship has just come in, you know? You've got a job for me? Yeah. There's an opening in the local school, they need a teacher. A teacher, says Richard Rich. You want me to be a teacher in a local school? Yes, you'd be a good teacher, Moore says. And Richard Rich fires back, and if I were, who would know it? Now there's the ego drama. (laughs) There's the ego drama. If I were, who would know it? I want to start a much bigger play than that. Here's Thomas Moore's answer. Yourself, your friends, your pupils... God? Not a bad public, that. That's theodramatic language. The only audience finally worth playing to is the divine audience. The ego always wants to play for the Wheel of Fortune audience, it always wants to play <laughs> for the worldly audience. The only audience finally worth playing for and to is the divine audience. Is God pleased with what I'm doing? Is God pleased with my choices? Are they congruent with his own choices. Here's a line I love from um, Joseph Campbell, the comparative mythologist. He said, a lot of people climb the ladder of success and discover it's up against the wrong wall. (laughs) Isn't that good? That's the story of a lot of our lives. I climb and climb and climb and do everything possible, but I discover that's not the wall God wanted me to climb. The real ladder was over there. That's God's ladder. I don't care how high you get on that one. It means nothing. It might be a tiny position here, but that's God's plan for you. It'll always conduce to greater joy. You know, when you do the uh, Ignatian spiritual exercises, maybe some of you had a, a Jesuit training, there's a wonderful moment where he forces a choice. He imagines two armies arrayed on the field, the army of Satan, the army of Christ. Which army are you gonna be in? Ignatius says, Satan will always offer you a big job in his army. Trust me, he'll offer you a big job. You can be brigadier general. <laughs> you, can be, you can be the field marshal of my army. Satan will always offer you a very big job. Christ might offer you clean the latrines, but that's the one you choose. That is the army you join. No matter what that job is, no matter how it appeals to your ego, that's the army that you join, and that's the work that you do. The saints, I think, know this in their bones. They're theodramatic players, not egodramatic players. You know, I want to read something to you from Robert Bella's book called Habits of the Heart. It came out about 20 years ago, a book about American culture and religion. It's a famous passage because it inspired lots of commentary by other critics and scholars. He's describing a young woman he interviewed named Sheila Larson. Now listen. Sheila Larson is a young nurse who describes her faith as Sheilaism. This suggests the logical possibility of more than 235 million American religions, one for each of us. I believe in God, Sheila says, but I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. I call it Sheilaism, it's my own little voice. Sheila's faith has some tenets beyond belief in God, though not many. In defining what she calls my own Sheilaism, she says, yeah, "It's just try to love yourself, be gentle with yourself, you know, take care of each other." Now that little passage, as I say, has inspired a lot of commentary, because Bella suggests that Sheilaism is perhaps the dominant religion in America. In the language I've been using, I would translate it as ego-dramatic religion. My life's about me. It's what my little voice tells me. Can I contrast something now with Sheilaism? I want to read to you from Paul's letter, his first letter to the Corinthians. Listen. Paul, he's introducing himself. Paul: called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God." Can I suggest to you that is the polar opposite of Shelaism? Sheilism says, it's my own little religion. What I want to do on my terms and my way. Now listen to Paul. Paul. Called. He puts himself right away in this passive voice. Paul's not doing the calling. He's called. Paul is not setting the agenda. The agenda is set for him. It's not Paul's project. It's someone else's project. When you were a young man, Saul, you tied your own belt and you went where you wanted to go. But when you're an old man, ready for spiritual action, when you're an old man, someone else will tie you up, the Spirit of God. Someone else will call you. He's called by what? By the will of God. By the will of God. You know, we are a willful culture. There's all kinds of reasons for that. We're a modern culture. And in the modern view, the will was very primary. My life, my rights, my perspective. Don't tread on me. You know, the primacy of the will is key. Notice, though, how Paul allows his own will to be occluded. Paul, called by the will of God, God's will is far more important than his own. God's projects for him, far more important than his own projects. To be what? called by God's will to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostle, from the word apostellane, which means to send. Our word postal and post office come from that, you send a letter. Paul is not writing a letter so much, he is a letter sent by somebody else. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Path number three, your life is not about you, means, that you, with all your powers and all your abilities and all your beauty and everything you've got, are sent, sent by a higher will. Sheilaism, kind of the general national religion, is the antithesis of that. And in some ways, Christians, I think, we have to fight it. Part of the warfare we're engaged in on path number three is fighting that tendency. Let me close with this. Freedom. Oh, we reverence freedom, don't we? Listen to people, especially our political leaders, talk about freedom. And right away, our our eyes sort of missed over and and we, we revel in this beautiful idea of freedom. Well, I agree. Freedom is a beautiful idea. It's right at the heart of the Bible. But can I suggest it means something very different in the Bible than it means in our ordinary speech? Our ordinary political speech, freedom means something like this. Freedom from external constraints. So as to have freedom for self-expression. I want to be free. I don't want you brooding over me. I don't want that institution brooding over me. And above all, I don't want God brooding over me. So I can be free to be myself, to set my agenda. sheilaism That's American freedom. That's not biblical freedom. In the Bible, freedom is freedom from attachment. Remember Path 2. Remember the Wheel of Fortune. Freedom from attachment. So that I might have freedom for doing the will of God. Andre Agassi again, able to move as the ball moves. No matter what comes at me in life, I'm able to respond to it because I'm free from the attachments to power and money and sex and pleasure and the esteem of others. I'm free from that, so now I'm free for the will of God. Paul says it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Love what he loved on that cross. Despise what he despised. Our freedom is found in our detachment from all the things he's detached from. And so in one of the highest ironies of our tradition, that is a picture of a free man. Counterintuitive, countercultural, yes. But the deepest truth of the New Testament, that is a picture of a free man. Now free only to do the will of his father. To walk on path number three, knowing your life is not about you is to
0: find that kind of freedom we hope you enjoyed that sample lesson from bishop barron's study program titled untold blessing as i mentioned in the beginning this is only part one of two so in a couple weeks we'll share part two of this segment on your life is not about you so look forward to that in the meantime if you want access right now to all the other lessons in this course sign up for the word on fire institute We've mentioned it several times on this podcast, but it's one of the most exciting ventures we've ever taken on. Over 15,000 Catholics have joined the Institute and are learning how to become better evangelists from some of the top minds in the church. We'd love for you to join us. Just visit wordonfire.institute. That's the website. When you sign up, you get access to all the courses we have. I think there's around a dozen. You get all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs, including this one, Untold Blessing. You get a copy of our latest journal, the Evangelization and Culture Journal, and you get a free copy of Bishop Barron's book, Centered, The Spirituality of Word on Fire. So there's no reason not to sign up. It's an amazing bargain, and we hope that you come on board and join these thousands and thousands of other Catholics today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.